Grab a Bible. We're in 1 Corinthians 10 this morning as we're walking through what it means to be a fan or a follower of Jesus, what it truly means to give all of our lives to him and have him be the Lord of our lives. And it's more than just cheering from the stands. It's actively participating and surrendering all of our lives. If I asked you to define the word culture, how would you define culture? Uh, There's lots of ways that we can look at it, but basically culture is the world in which we are born and the world that is born in us. It's the comprehensive penetrating context that encompasses life and thought, art and speech, entertainment and sensibility, values and faith. It's the customs, the arts, the social institutions and achievements of a particular nation, people or other social group. And so culture really is the things around us in our lives that really make us who we are. It derives actually from the Latin word colere, which means to tend the earth or to grow, or cultivate, or nurture. And really, that's a perfect definition of culture, is to cultivate the earth. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, after God had created mankind, he gave us a commission. It said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Psalm 8 echoed that uh, uh, sentiment. When God has given us a, a stewardship, a trust... And really, he said, to fill the earth and subdue it, made in his image, we are creators in our own right. We create things that are good and hopefully beautiful, music and art. But here's my definition of culture. It's much easier to remember. It's the stuff we made up. (laughs) It's the stuff we made up. We made up art. We made up music. We made architecture. We made all of that stuff. God didn't make it. We did. And because we're made in his image, he's given us intellect And he's given us, uh, part of his image is to be creators of beauty and those kinds of things. But it's it's stuff we made up. It's, it's, It's rooted in mankind. It's not inherently sacred. We are sacred as creatures made in his image, but culture is not inherently sacred. Now, there are some aspects of cultures that come from the sacred. God has created us in his image. And creating his image, we have this longing to connect with him. And because all human beings are created in this image, we have this spiritual component. And so every person who's ever lived has a spiritual component. And so we will worship something. We will worship the God of the universe who created this, or we will substitute an idol, or we will substitute some other thing. And so some of the stuff we made up in culture, it shouldn't surprise us that it has spiritual overtones, whether it's Christian or not, because that's who God has made us. Tim Keller says this, we should not think that one culture is less idolatrous than the next. Traditional societies tend to make the family unit and the clan into an absolute ultimate thing. This can lead to honor killings, the treatment of women as chattel, and violence toward gay people. Western culture, secular culture, makes an idol out of individual freedom, and this leads to the breakdown of the family, rampant materialism, careerism, and the idolization of romantic love, physical beauty, and profit. Every culture has something in it that comes at odds against God's word and against the substituting of him for an idol. And so that's where Paul finds, uh, where we find ourselves in Paul's flow of thought in 1 Corinthians. He's addressing meat offered to idols, Well, where did these idols and these temples come from? It's because the people living in Corinth had this spiritual nature, the spiritual part of them. And so instead of connecting to the one true God of the universe, they connected to all these other gods. And so all other gods or all other spiritual things that are not rooted in the creator God, the blanket term is pagan. 
there's the one true God, but everything else is, is termed pagan. So we are either worshiping the one true God, the God that, who created all that we see, the, the uh, self-existent, never-beginning God, or we will substitute it. And so idolatry and paganism go together when we substitute the worship of the true God for something we made up. And so Paul then walks through chapter 10 and he warns us from Israel's history. And what was the tension in Israel's history? The tension was always with an idol. Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And Paul reminds us that what did the people do when he was gone? They created an idol. They created an image and they worshipped it and served it. And they wanted to find their security and their worth from this thing. And so Paul then tells us that we need to be careful that we stand because we may fall if we don't realize where we are, that we are susceptible to maybe not being at a place where we really think that we are. And so at the very end of our passage last week, he says, when you're tempted, God will also provide a way out. The temptation and the way out always come in pairs. When the temptation comes in your life, there's always an open door somewhere. And we often don't avail ourselves of the door because the temptation has lured us, it has pulled us in. So Paul has that in mind. Let's pick up in verse 14. Here's what he says in chapter 10. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Paul says, here's how you get through temptation, is you flee from idolatry. You flee, you get away. And so what Paul does is he has all of this language. It's it's couched in this idea of idolatry, of us substituting the one true God for something that we've made up. And we all are susceptible to it if we're not careful, because Paul says, be careful that you stand, because you may be fallen, because you may be worshiping an idol. So in verse 15, then, he says this, I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. So here's Paul's tactic. Paul's tactic is to persuade. He says, I want to give you some reasons, because we as creatures made in God's image, we have reason and we have intellect and it's just how we're created and so so paul says i want to give you some reasons why it's you need to flee from idolatry some some reasons why you need to not participate in idolatry this idea of idolatry in the bible it's a, it's a very it's a very sophisticated idea so what it does is it it is a, it's a combination of intellectual and psychological and social and cultural and spiritual categories so idolatry in the scripture is all of those things put together it isn't just i made this little a golden calf, and I'm putting it out to worship it as a spiritual thing, but there's a whole host of other things that go along with an idol. One is psychological. We say, what's psychological about that? Because it makes me feel good. It makes me feel that I'm in control. When I have this idol, whether it's an idol idol or it's an idol such as work or family or all kinds of good things, what it does is it makes me feel like I'm in control. And so it's a psychological thing. It's a, it's a thing that I have that I feel like I can control this uh, idol. It's intellectual. Sometimes we think through things. Uh, sometimes we think things too much at times. But it always involves a spiritual element. So Paul, what he does is he says, I'm going to try to persuade you. So, so church, Paul's going to try to persuade us today. And he's going to try to persuade us to uh, live our lives in allegiance to the one true God. And so what he does is he uses the illustration of the Lord's Supper. We just celebrated that. And in verse 16, here's what he says. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Eating and drinking are the themes of 
1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10. Remember, the issue was this. The Corinthians Christians, the know-it-alls, the people who had knowledge said, you know these, these pagan temples, these temples that are devoted to gods, that's not the true God. They're not real because only God is real. So these temples are not real. And so what people are doing when they offer these meat sacrifice to idols, they're, they're engaging in an exercise that's not true and it's not real. So therefore, we can eat the meat. Because the, because the idol that the meat was offered to, the idol isn't real. Therefore, the, nothing has changed with the meat. So Paul uses that theme of eating and drinking to try to persuade us in our lives of where our allegiance is. Paul isn't going to give us instruction about the Lord's Supper. He's going to do that in chapter 11 when we get there. But what he does is... He's, he's, he's going to argue something about participating in the Lord's Supper and participating with the meat that's been offered to idols. This is what he says in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrifice to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. And so Paul uses the Lord's Supper. What does he say about the Lord's Supper? He says this cup that we participate in the, reminds us of the blood of Jesus. In Luke chapter 22, we read at their supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so what Paul says is this, when I participate in communion, when I'm involved in the act of communion, it is more, it is more than just remembering. It's more than bread and juice. There is a, there is a participation. Did you catch that? that Paul used. He said there's a participation. And so when we come to do the Lord's Supper, it is more than just passing around bread and juice. We are participating in the body of Christ. Paul is not saying it is the body of Christ, the bread and the juice, but he says in the act of partaking, we are participating. In other words, we are expressing our allegiance and we are participating in the life of Jesus. He says, as you drink the cup, we participate in what? In the blood of Christ. And he says, and the bread is a participation in the body of Christ. In other words, it is more, it is more than just symbols, but there's a spiritual reality that takes place. That's why we don't treat the Lord's Supper flippantly or treat it as a joke or just something, but it's a, it's a participation. There is a, there is a spiritual element to what's that spiritual element. As believers, we are part of the body of Christ. And as we remember the body and blood of Jesus, we're participating what in his broken body for us. And so Paul is arguing about using these meals that were offered to pagan sacrifices, and he uses the Lord's Supper as we participate in a special way in communion with the Lord. You see, the real issue for Paul is not the observance, but it is the divided loyalty. Well, what is he saying? He says, because if you are participating in a meal that was offered to an idol, you are participating in that 
But when you take the Lord's Supper, you are also participating in that. You see how Paul is framing his argument to persuade us? He says, when you do these things, you are associating or connecting yourself with these things. These things are um, amoral. In other words, the bread and the juice, there's no inherent morality associated with them. The issue is our heart. We can, we can take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. We can have perfect attendance at the Lord's table week after week, and we still can lose contact with the blood of Jesus if we're trusting in the ritual and not in Jesus. If I'm trusting in the shot glasses and the chiclets that are passed around each Sunday to help me with my relationship with Jesus, I'm missing the point. And Paul says, I don't want you to miss the point. It is more than just elements. You are spiritually connected to Jesus. You're participating with Jesus. It's the issue of our heart. I can do the motions without really ever connecting myself to God. What we're doing is we're, we're trusting in the ritual and not in the blood of Jesus. And so it takes focus and it takes my heart to be in it. And so Paul uses this illustration of the Lord's table. He says, believers, listen, when you, part, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, it is more than just observing. In other words, it's more than just remembering you're connecting yourself to Jesus in a spiritual sense. But then he uses another illustration, again, from Israel's history in verse 18. What did he say? He said, consider the people of Israel. He said, those who ate the sacrifices, what they do? They participated in the altar. Listen, they did not literally partake of the altar. They didn't literally partake of the meat of the altar. But what happened was, Paul is saying in, in, in the nation of Israel, when I brought my sacrifice to the temple, because it was required of me as, a, as an, a, an offering for my sin, I was doing more than just bringing this offering. What does he use? He uses the word participate. I'm participating in the altar. What does that mean? That means when the priest took my sacrifice, offered it on the altar to have an atonement for my sins or to uh, make amends for my sins, I participated spiritually in the altar. This is Paul's persuasion. So he's used two things to try to persuade us. One is the Lord's Supper. And then he goes back to the Old Testament. And he says that when the person brought this sacrifice, means that it's not the physical thing of the sacrifice, but there's a spiritual reality behind it. And so Paul is now persuading us. And so he is already one step ahead. Because the Corinthians tried to argue this, and we may argue, argue this as well. You say, well, it is really just bread, and it really is just juice. And in the Old Testament, when the person brought the sacrifice, it really was just a lamb or a ram or a pigeon or whatever it was. And the Corinthians would say, because they've already argued this, yeah, but Paul, you've already told us that idols were nothing. He, Paul has this strict monotheism in Corinthians. What he says is, there is only one God. Everybody else is not God. Everything else is not God. And so the Corinthians may be thinking, Paul, but you've already told us that the idols were nothing. And if we have the meat, we can eat it, but it may cause someone to stumble. And so Paul uh, is already anticipating their, uh, their objections. And so here's what he says in verse 19. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? 
Paul is cautioning the Corinthians about participating in the food sacrificed to idols. That's what he's trying to persuade them. He's trying to persuade them not to do it. Now, he's already laid this argument that the idol is nothing, and we know that the idol is nothing, and the food offered to the idol is nothing. And then the Corinthians are like, now, wait a minute, Paul, now you're saying the idol is something. Which is it? It sounds like you're, you know, uh, you're not consistent in your, in your theology or, or in your argument. And so, so Paul says, says this, I'm not saying, here's what Paul is saying. Verse 19, I am not saying that a food sacrifice to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything. Paul's like, you're misunderstanding what I'm trying to say. If you think that I'm saying now that the idols are real and that the food I offer to idols is, is real, that's not what I'm saying. But there is, a, there is another connection that Paul is making. And he says that in verse 20. No. Paul, are you saying that now that a, a food offered to an idol is something? Paul says, no. And that's not what I'm saying. But, look what he says in verse 20. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. In other words, Paul is saying this. When the pagans come... Those who are worshiping God beside the one true creator God, when they come and are worshiping, what he's saying is there are some evil forces associated with that. Paul is not saying when the Corinthians came and offered their food at the idol, uh, to an idol and they offered it to one of their gods, Paul is not saying that that specific god is an evil spirit or that specific god is a demon. What's Paul's argument? Paul's argument is that by participating in something that's not God, it's got to be uh, something that's not holy and something that's not him. And so you're participating in, what does he say? In these spiritual realities. He's accusing the Christians who have assimilated into these religious environments of perhaps not really leaving these religious environments. He says that when pagans worship to their gods... They are, in fact, offering their idols to demons. Now, do they understand this? No. They would say that their gods are good and benevolent and are, are, are helping them. But Paul, says, but Paul says behind that deception, behind the lie, is what? Is the father of lies. So I'm either, I'm either offering my sacrifice to the one true God in truth, in spirit, in truth, as Jesus said, or otherwise, I'm offering it to a lie, to a counterfeit, to something that's not real. See where Paul's going? And Paul's persuading them, he's trying to persuade us, that if, that yes, even though I know the idol is nothing, just by participating in that, I am somehow connecting myself to the deeper spiritual reality that's behind that. Just like when you participate in the Lord's Supper, you are connecting yourself to a deeper spiritual reality, which is what? Jesus. So the very same thing happened. There, listen, there is no neutral spiritual ground. I know in our secular, Western, scientific world, the concept of spirit is foreign to many people. They just, that's why they don't believe there is a God, because all that exists is what we see, the created matter. But Paul is reminding us that there is no neutral spiritual ground. And when I participate in things that are not directed toward the one true God, I'm in fact offering that to demons. He says, 
that Satan himself, what, masquerades as an angel of light. It looks good. And so he says, I, I, I'm trying, listen, listen, believers, I know you're in cultural context, and I know there are things that are readily acceptable, and I know that there are things that are popular, but I want, I want you to be discerning, and I want you to, to be sensible. I'm trying to persuade you. Because he goes on to say, in verse 22, he says, well, first he says, I don't want you to, what, be participants. Remember, the idea is about participating. And in verse 21, he says, what, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the, and the table of demons. He, so what Paul is saying is, Corinthians, you're going to have to make a choice. This, this kind of straddling defense and wanting to do both things isn't going to cut it. In fact, you're going to have to cut one of them out. And that's what Paul has to persuade us. And listen, it is very easy in our, in our tolerant, accepting world that we just accept everything and we want to be able to do everything and participate in everything. But Paul is really challenging us is that, listen, as believers, you're going to have to pick a side. You can't be offering food to demons in these uh, sacrificial meals and the Lord's table at the same time. What's Paul after? It's, it's our divided loyalty. It's, it's this loyalty where we say that we can do both. And what does Paul say in verse 21? You what? Cannot. He doesn't say you may be able to do both if you're smart enough. You may be able to do enough if you, do both if you have enough willpower. You may be able to do both if you have enough faith. You may be able to do enough if you have a great prayer life. You may be able to do both if you repent. What does Paul say? You can't do it. You, you, just, you, just, you just cannot do it. We cannot participate in the redemptive work of Jesus and participate in the manipulative powers that are behind all other things that are not of God. The gospel does not allow for religious pluralism. The gospel does not allow us to say everybody is okay and every way to worship is okay. The gospel does not allow that. Paul doesn't allow that. He's trying to persuade us that we need to make a choice. That we need to, to look at those things that we, what, are participating in. He reaches back to the Old Testament, monotheism. That's what separated the nation of Israel from all other nations. What? They worship the one God, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is many. Is that what it says? No. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. It separated Israel from all other nations. And all other nations had a, had a multiplicity of gods and idols and things to worship in. And that's what separates God's covenant people apart from every other people. Is that, there, that for us, there is only one God, and it's Yahweh. It's the God, the creator God of the Bible. There's a, there's a current belief in our culture that all religions contain some element of truth and some form of salvation, that's a, that, that you, it is possible to know the God of the universe through each religion, that each religion offers you a path to God. But writing about the Corinthians, one commentator said this, they lived in a large metropolitan area in which one could find scores of temples, shrines, and altars to pagan deities. 
And there would not have been a single part of their education and upbringing that would have told them they could not worship all of these pagan gods and goddesses at the same time. In other words, growing up in Corinth, guess what they were told? All paths are valid. All gods are equal. Every road leads to God. Every road leads to salvation. Don't choose one over the other and say it's the right way because they're all valid. Does that sound familiar? That's what the Corinthians were told. The Corinthians would never have heard the message that you know some of these gods, or all of these gods, beside the one true God, are false. And your eternal life is in danger if you are participating with these gods. Then along comes Paul, and he, he's operating in this kind of this Old Testament prophet role, right? He does not tolerate this religious pluralism manifested by believers who want to be able to participate in their religious feasts. Because here's what happened. The Corinthians said, yeah, we know God's the one way, but, but I'd like to do this, and I want to participate in this. And I think this is okay, because why? I know. I'm one of the know-it-alls. I know these things. And so I, I, I know I can do this. And Paul comes back and he says, you can't. I'm telling you, you can't. You may think you can, but you can't. Because when you are participating in that, you are connecting yourself to a deeper spiritual reality. And the deeper spiritual reality is, if it's not of God, it isn't for him. It's oftentimes against him. All religions, listen, all religions make contradictory claims. And to say that all religions lead to salvation is to not respect the teachings of those religions. Every religion is exclusive. Everyone. I know Christianity gets the rap because we're like, Jesus is the only way. But every religion is exclusive. The New Testament said Jesus was God and Jesus was sacrificed on the cross and he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. The Quran said it wasn't Jesus. He didn't die on the cross and he didn't rise from the dead. Which is it? If you've been coming on Sunday mornings, you know how to answer that at 9 a.m. But I'll tell you, it's got to be one or the other. It can't be both. Either Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead or he didn't. There's no like middle ground. Listen, half dead isn't dead. You're still alive. It just isn't going to work. But that's what happens when we accept that all religions are equal, all religions are true, all paths lead to God. Listen, if Hinduism and Buddhism are true, what that means is, is that we just dissolve into some cosmic existence. We empty ourselves of our personality and we become one with the great force of the universe. Listen, there is either just a mindless uh, force or there is a personal God. It can't be both. It's either we dissolve into nothingness, we dissolve into losing our own personalities just to become one with the universe, or we keep our personalities because we connect with a God who is a being with a personality. It can't be both. And Paul, what Paul is saying is this. We want to be able to do both. But he says you can't. You can't. I, I, Paul, I'm trying to persuade you. That's what Paul's saying. When you participate with Jesus, you can't have one foot in with him and another foot over here. He's, he's, he's saying you, he says you cannot, you cannot, you cannot do it. This also challenges our popular view that we must recover all of these ancient 
spiritual practices and all kinds of things and worship the earth and worship all kinds of things and you say well you know it makes me feel good and it makes me it makes me uh, uh, it makes me a better person paul's saying you can't do it I'm, I'm telling you paul says that there's a deeper spiritual reality behind what you're doing and so he gives us a couple applications and, and just for our our dancing and dining pleasure let's just look at these applications that paul gives us first he says, evaluate. Doesn't he say that in verse 15? He says, um, I speak to a sensible people, judge or evaluate. And what he says, that judge means discern. You need to pick. You need to choose. And so in light of God's words, in the light of Paul's instructions, what Paul says, you need to evaluate your, your practices and the things that you are doing in your life. Christian and pagan worship are fundamentally incompatible with each other because they are diametrically opposite spiritual beings behind each of them. Paul wrote about the strong Christians, the strong Christians who knew an idol wasn't anything, and and the strong Christians said, well, I can participate, and it's not going to hurt me. And what does Paul say? Be careful that you stand lest you fall. You're not as strong as you think you are. And then Paul was also talking about the weaker believers who were unable to resist, right? And they thought that this meat was offered to idols and that the pagan uh, could count on the idols, what, to help them overcome and all those kinds of things. And so Paul says, we need to evaluate, we need to judge for ourselves. Behind everything that's not of God and the truth of God is what? It's a, it's a lie. There's the deception. And, and again, the father of lies is behind that. Again, Paul is not saying that each individual idol that the Corinthians worshipped to, that there was a demon behind that. But the concept of, of false uh, uh, teaching, the concept of, of the fact that it's not the true God, who is behind that? Well, there is evil. There is deception. There is, Paul says, he's, Satan has blinded the eyes of the non-believers so they can't see. And so in my life, I need to evaluate what I am doing. I need to I need to look at my practices, the things that I have accepted. And then the next thing he says, or actually said this one first, is we need to escape. We need to flee from idolatry. Escape the hole that it has on your heart. You don't remove it from you, you remove you from it. <laughs> what that's what Paul's saying is you you get yourself away. You you flee. And, and and so what Paul is saying is these overtly pagan rituals remain off limits to believers. You are not to participate in overtly pagan rituals. Now obviously he's talking about also immoral, illegal or destructive behaviors. But do you know how sometimes the the amoral, that thing that isn't moral, can lead to immoral? It's those isms in our life. Drinking can lead to what? Alcoholism. Working long hours can lead to what? Workaholism. Excessive patriotism can lead to what? Statism. A desire for material good can lead to what? Materialism. So we have to be very careful. And what Paul is saying is, you can't do both. You can't, you can't do, have, a, have a foot in each world. He says, remember, he says, what God is faithful. In verse 13, he says, he will not allow, he will provide a way of escape. And so we need to look for that escape. So what does that mean for your life? What, is, what does that mean as we evaluate our lives? Are there things that we participate in that are not Christian in origin, that are not rooted in the Judeo-Christian standard that's in the Bible? I know, we're already thinking, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Listen, Paul is not saying 
because it's, a, it's not about your perception, it's about your participation. Paul doesn't care what you know about idols. He doesn't know, care what you know about the practice. He doesn't care what you know about how you practice the practice. What he's saying is, by practicing the practice, you're participating. Just because you're doing it, you're participating. I don't care what you know about it, but your participation is the problem. Paul isn't even concerned about pragmatism. Yeah, but it works. You know that meat that was offered to the idol? It'll satisfy your hunger, won't it? Might even be better than the other meat you can buy in the market. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is not pragmatism. That, that you know what, I, I, just, I just buy the meat because it tastes better. It doesn't do, it, 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 it satisfies my hunger and I, it's delicious. Paul says it doesn't matter. Pragmatism is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your participation in it. It's not how I view it, but it's how God views it. And practices with pagan spiritual origins are to be avoided because they don't originate with the God of the Bible. When I say, yeah, but it's what I know, it's my perception, or I do it just because it makes me feel good, it's pragmatism, what, who is the pronoun in all of those sentences? Me, 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 me. It's what I think. It's what I get out of it. It's what I feel. The issue isn't what I get out of it, how, what I feel. It's what God thinks. And Paul says, I'm trying to persuade you. I'm trying to persuade you. It, 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 yes, that meat may taste delicious. It may be the most tender meat you've ever had in your life. You don't even need a knife. It just falls off the boat. It's so delicious. I tempted some of you to go to Mission Barbecue last week. Maybe today you can go back there again, smelling that meat and that barbecue. Paul says, that's not the point. The point is not what it tastes like. The point is not that it satisfies your hunger. The point is that you are participating in something that you cannot participate in. Why is it we defend or vehemently or sometimes vehemently defend our right to do something? Someone challenges us and we will get so bent out of shape. A couple years ago, uh, Matt Walsh has a blog and he wrote an article suggesting perhaps Christians should not participate in yoga. Now, I'm not going to talk about the article. I'm going to talk about their responses. The ugliness and the hatred and the vitriol and the meanness. How dare you tell me what to do? You don't. And I mean, I'm like, these are Christian people (laughs) who are so angry. And I thought, if we study human responses You know why? Because he touched an idol. And boy, if somebody touches our idol, we do not like it. We get mean and we get nasty and we get have this uh, anger. And, uh, you know, you would have thought he was advocating child sacrifices or spitting on your mama. I mean, it was it was awful. It was just terrible. And we get very upset when someone touches our idols. Why? Because we're jealous for them. It's our security. Tim Keller says this, a counterfeit God or an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. That's what an idol does. And when somebody suggests, listen, when somebody suggests that maybe you shouldn't do it 
and I get very angry and I get very upset and I get very defiant, well, who do you think you are? What happens is the deeper root is that that potentially is an idol in my life because I can't imagine life without it. And if I can't imagine life without it, that thing is an idol. Listen, it can be good things. It can be your family. I can't imagine life without my family. You're going to have to someday, unless you die first. You, you really are. We've been laughing over the last couple of days. I've had many conversations about these emotional support animals. Do you see the guy on the plane that took a horse on the plane? Look it up. You can Google it right now if you want. I'll give you permission. Somebody has an emotional support iguana. Do you know what those things are? Those things are furry little idols. Because I cannot get on a plane without my pony, my little pony, right? I, I, I can't do that because if that was gone, life would not be worth living. Listen, I don't know how long horses live, but they generally die before you do. And if your emotional support is in this iguana or in this horse or in this dog, there was a cat on the flash flight I was on walking around the aisle and a lady who had cat allergies. She was hilarious. She's like, <gasps> not for real, but, you know, hypochondriac. Anyhow, if we think that our support is going to be on this thing, it's going to be gone. So Paul's trying to persuade us. What, is the, what are those things in our lives that we can't imagine? We just can't imagine living without? Do you know what I can guarantee probably doesn't make our list? God. We never really say, Lord, I cannot live without you. We say, Lord... I can live without my family. I can live without my wife. I can live without my kids. I can live without my health. I can live without my finances. I can live without a place to live. I can. But when do we come back to the God and say, "Lord, I can't live without you"? You see, what happens is we're jealous for our idols. And when somebody even suggests, maybe not even says, "You need to get rid of this," in the in the manner that Paul did, but we have, can we just be honest enough to say, "You know, maybe I need to evaluate this." And maybe if it has such a hold on my life, I need to escape from it. Because what do we, we are jealous for our idols. Now I want you to transfer this. Think about how jealous you are for your idol. That's how God looks at you. He does. God looks at us with this jealousy. Why? Paul says that in verse 22. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? It's the Lord's jealousy. This is, listen, this is the reason for Paul's request. For, for Paul's request. It isn't pragmatism. It's not that your life's going to be better. Here's five steps to a happier life. Here's three steps to a better spiritual life. Don't participate with demons. No, that's not what Paul said. Here's Paul's rationale. Paul says it's because the Lord's jealous for you. And all throughout, the, all throughout the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, it says they sacrifice to false gods, which are not God. Gods they had not known. Gods that recently appeared. God your ancestors did not fear. Deuteronomy 32, down to verse 21. And God says this, They made me jealous. Listen, they made me jealous by what is no God. And they angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. Paul says this, The reason believers that I'm encouraging you to be wholeheartedly devoted to God is because he's jealous for you. 
He's jealous for you. This jealousy is related to God's holiness, and it's, and it's, and it's, his, it's his power, and it's the, it's the thing that God will, he will not stand for any rivals. Any rivals. We understand that from relationships, right? When you were in high school and you were dating, and all of a sudden you, you DTR'd, you defined the relationship, and now we're going steady. How did you feel when he or she was dating somebody else? You felt what? Jealous. There's a, rightfully so. There was, there, was a, there was a betrayal of trust. There was what? An, a, a divided loyalty there. And that's all Paul says. That's, that's why I'm asking you this. That's why I'm trying to persuade you is that you don't want to make God jealous for you by participating in the tables of demons or participating in things that are not of him or that are not sanctioned by him. He says, with a, he finishes with a rhetorical, are we stronger than he? <laughs> Talk about a rhetorical question. Are you stronger than God? Well, if I answer yes, Paul would say, you're a fool. You just really are. But sometimes we think we are. The answer is no, we're not stronger than God. So if we're not stronger than God, Paul is saying, then we should be uh, aware and, and understand those places that we are participating in. John Calvin noted, Anyone who fights with God is voluntarily inviting his own ruin, nothing less. Therefore, if we are afraid of having God for an enemy, we should have a greater fear of trying to make excuses for flagrant sins, anything that is in conflict with the world. We should also shudder at the thought of calling in questions things which he has told us. We're not stronger than God. So Paul comes back to that point and says, listen, God is jealous for you. He wants your undivided loyalty. He, 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 wants your, he wants your whole heart. You know, sports fans have their own cultures. The team colors and the songs and the chants. And right, there's, there's this community with other believers. I want you to imagine today your favorite team, whoever that is. I don't want you to think about their record, okay? Because I know if your team lost, you're like, I'm ready to give up on them. I want you to think about your favorite team is they have an awesome record and they are winning. And I want you to think about whoever that is, that you're going to go home today and you're going to get rid of all your favorite team stuff, all the jerseys, the memorabilia, the old tickets, the photographs, the everything. And then you're going to switch to another team that you don't like so well. You're all going to be go home and you're going to be Patriots fans today. Okay, You're going to get rid of everything and you're going to put a big old poster of Tom Brady on your wall when you get home. Why are you laughing? Because you're thinking that ain't going to happen. But that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. He says, the thing you love so much, the place that you get your identity, the place you get your worth, I want you to trade all those and I want you to join my team. I want you to get rid of all of those things and I want you to join my team. That's what Jesus calls us to do as followers. And if we're not careful, we can become part of the rival team. He said in Luke chapter 11, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so there is this, this we, can be on the, we can be on Jesus' rival team and not really know it. Why? Because we've been transferred to a new kingdom. Look what Colossians 1.13 says on your notes. For he has rescued us from a kingdom, a dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. When you became a believer, you have transferred kingdoms. You have transferred your citizenship. In fact, Ezekiel talks about this new covenant. 
He says, they will return to it, remove all its images, coming back to the land, what? Going to remove the images and the idols. And here's what God said he's going to do. I will give them an undivided heart. Put a new spirit in them. I will remove them from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. That's the promise of the new covenant. What does God do? He takes that old hard heart of stone and he regenerates it and gives what? A heart of flesh. What is a heart of flesh? A heart of flesh is a heart of life. And so using the imagery of idols, those idols are stone. They can't speak. They can't hear. They can't talk. And yet we give them our devotion. And God says, I want to, I want to get rid of that. And I'm going to give you this new heart that is life. And it's beating. And it's one that connects with me, the one true God of the universe. You know, the irony with God is he's got to be thinking, I'm the one that gave you your creativity. Why are you creating idols? Where do you think the ability to even have idols came from? It came from me. They're not going to save you, but I will save you. And so the God, listen, the gospel challenges every culture. It's really hard. If you sat down and, and, and tried to define what culture you were a part of, we are all at any time part of many, many cultures. We just really are. I mean, you can, you can go macro to the country, to micro to your family, a little bit. Right? We just are part of many. And at all those places, Paul says, listen, I want you to evaluate. Are there some things that you just have, have participated in that are not of God because that might be arousing? It is arousing his jealousy. You see, we define culture, we create culture, and then culture defines us. We create music, or we create fashion, and then what happens? Fashion defines us. I don't see any guys wearing a leisure suit from 1970 in here today. Why? Because we created clothing, and then clothing creates us. It defines us. And that's what happens with culture. We create culture, and if we're not careful, culture defines us. But here's what God says. When you've been transferred to a new kingdom, your identity is not in your culture. Your identity is not in your idols. Where is your identity? It's in Jesus. That's the, that's the culture that defines us. So that means at the end of the day, everything else can go because I know that God loves me in Jesus. I know that I am accepted in Jesus. I know that my heart can be undivided when it comes to God because then I can let things go that are, not, or that are pulling my devotion to Him because I know that I'm in this new kingdom. We are afraid to let go of our idols because if we're honest, our, idols, we, our, our identity and our security is in our idols. But here's what Jesus says, your identity is in me. And I got you. I got you. On me, it's, it's the foundation on the rock, right? That, 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 your, that your house isn't going to fall. And you build your life on me. And all those other things can go. Where are you participating? What are, what are things in our, in our, in our lives that, that we are participating? And ask the question, is this participation arousing God's jealousy? It's not what I know. Paul already addressed that. It's not what I feel. It's not what I get out of it. God, or Paul makes it very simple. It's, it's the very fact of participation that arouses the Lord's jealousy. 
I can give all the excuses I want. I can give all the reasons I want. But at the end of the day, it's my participation. And where does the participation come from? It's because somewhere my heart has told me it doesn't matter. And God says, yeah, it kind of (laughs) matters. I'm jealous for you. God says to us, I don't want to share you with anybody else. I don't want to, and who's the anybody else? It's those idols. If we're not careful, those things can creep into our lives and those things can take over our lives. Does it mean our life is over? No. Does it mean that I'm going to go to hell? No. Paul said the issue is not that. It's that we're not stronger than God and that God is jealous for us. You, listen, you have a God that is jealous for you. Not in that boyfriend-girlfriend kind of jealous, not the stuff the movies are made of, but this holy jealousy that Jesus died for you and now God wants your heart to be solely and, and entirely devoted to him. And when I scatter it out to these idols in my life and I find security from other things, God says, I'm your security. When I find my worth in other things, God says, listen, I'm your worth. When I find love in other things, God says, listen, I am the love that you're looking for. When I find my future in other things, God says, I'm the future that you're looking for. Would you please stand? And we're going to pray. And it's just simply a time for us to let Paul persuade us a little bit. Father, we sometimes misunderstand your jealousy because we look at it from a human perspective. But God, you are jealous for us because you love us. And you want us to find our security and our worth and our future in you. God, all the love that we're looking for in life comes from you. All the hope that we look for in life comes from you. God, all the meaning and purpose that we look for in life comes from you. And so, Father, over these next few moments, would you just show us, perhaps, if we have made something an idol, something that we just can never think we could live without. Something that we think that if it was gone, that somehow my world would be over. And, Father, that's the thing that you want us to escape from and flee from in our hearts. So that we trust you completely with an undivided heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.